Anyone? Have you ever been in, this, in a season where you have been asking God and continuously asking God and praying to God, but it never came? But you still pray. We all do. We all go through those, that season. And, and when that happens, when you pray, most of the time, we ask God for a sign. We ask God for something like confirmation if this is his will. And most of the time, when, when we think about signs, we think about supernatural, something that's extraordinary, like a cloud formation in the sky or a thunder or maybe something that will happen that will make you think that really this is God's answer to your prayer. We all asked for signs. When I first when I first met my wife, we were still in high school. I first met her in church. Um we were young. Um she was beautiful and smart, so immediately got my attention. But she was like a flower among the bees. So many competition. <laughs> I was not very confident, so but when I saw her, I said, Lord, is this the one? <laughs> and I was asking God for a sign as well. I was asking God, is this the one? I remember that when I was still young, as young as high school, I was already asking God for a lifetime partner. I was not serious. I was asking God. I don't want to, you know, meddle with things. So I want to ask God for, for somebody. And when I saw her, I thought maybe she's the one. But I have this naive thinking that if maybe God will give me a sign, if maybe God will tell me so that I can tell her that God told me that she's the one, maybe she will say yes. I was naive. I was naive. It didn't happen. It didn't happen. The truth is that signs are more simplistic than supernatural. Sometimes when we are looking for signs, we're looking for something extraordinary. But the truth is, when God gives signs, and the truth is God gives signs and confirmations in many ways, but the only problem is that, is that we're not looking properly for the signs. We're looking for something else. And when we look for something else, we're looking exactly at the wrong places. So at that time, because there's so much competition, and I could not confirm because I was looking for a different kind of sign, I was looking for, you know, something extraordinary. It didn't came. It did not come. So I said, maybe this is not the one. So I gave up and we went our separate ways. But many years after God brought us back together. And at this time, I know what to look for. I think that when Christians pray for something, I think that when we pray for something, because we're about to make a major decision in life, I think that we are looking for signs and we're looking for signs in the wrong places. Let me read to you Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, because this is going to be our, our text today. But let me segue a little bit. If you're praying for a lifetime partner, and you, you kind of like the one that you are with right now, but you're not sure if he's or she is the one. And you're praying to God, Lord, give me guidance. Give me the direction. I want a confirmation if he or she is the one. But you haven't have it. God has, hasn't answered you yet. Or maybe you are make, about to make a major decision in life. Maybe you're about to, to step into a business venture. And you want to make, you want to have a confirmation. Lord, is this your will for my life? 
Or maybe you're about to choose a career path. Or maybe you're about to change your career path. Or, or, or even as, uh, as simple as deciding on the next vacation destination. You want God to be in your life. You want God's will to be in your life. So you're asking God for guidance and direction. But you're asking God for a sign. Well, at the back of your mind, when you say a sign, you're asking for something that's extraordinary. Like I said, it could be a, a cloud formation in the sky or a lightning from heaven or something. But then the truth is God gives us plenty of signs and confirmations, but these are not the things that we are expecting. These are not the things that we are looking for. So this morning, I want to talk to you about discerning the signs. How do we read the signs properly? How do we look for signs? Or where do we look for signs? So when we pray to God, so that before we make a major decision in life, we have the confidence that this is the will of God for my life. Christmas is not what you think it is. This is the sermon series that we have for the whole month of December. Last week, we talked about the birth certificate of Jesus Christ. And we talked about his genealogy. Now, we're moving to the second series. It's called The Name. There's another name of Jesus in the Bible. When you read the book of Matthew, Matthew will present us with two names, Jesus, and there's another one. He's called Emmanuel. Matthew will quote a passage from the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, and he will talk about this other name. Jesus is the name of Jesus, right? And then when you read Matthew, you, you kind of get the, this confusion because Matthew will give us another name, but this name is actually not a name, but a sign. Name is different from a sign. His name is Jesus, but the sign is Emmanuel. Now, again, why, why is it that the Jews crucified Jesus? The simple answer is this, because they missed the sign. They missed the sign, so they condemned Jesus and crucified him on the cross. They missed the signs big time. They missed the sign because they were looking in the wrong places. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. This is the story of the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, you know this, but we're going to go through slowly all the passages, and we're going to try to explain why Emmanuel is not a name and a sign, and what this, this has to do with me. Matthew 1, verse 18, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now this is very interesting. Let's go over this very, very slowly, because there's so many things going on in here. Now, betrothal in the ancient Israel lasts for about a year. Uh, in some cultures, engagements happen in six months and then the wedding. But betrothal in, in ancient Israel is more serious than compared to betrothal or engagements here in the West. Engagements here in the West is when a guy falls on his knees and gives a ring and says, will you marry me? Correct? Ladies? Yes? But in the ancient Israel, it's different. In today's world, after, so when you get engaged after a couple of months, two or three, then the wedding day, but in the duration of that engagement, you can still call it quits if you say, change your mind. But in ancient Israel, when a couple is engaged or betrothed, they are legally binded 
it's always it's almost tantamount to marriage. The only way that you can break that engagement, that betrothal, is if you file for divorce. That's right. So what this means is that Joseph and Mary were already betrothed one year before the wedding day minus the honeymoon. That's how it's done in ancient Israel. So what this means is that in Matthew 18, when Joseph found out that Mary was already pregnant before the honeymoon, before the wedding day, during the time of their betrothal, there's, this only means one thing, promiscuity. Something is off. He knows this is not his kid. He's sure. So there's only one conclusion for Joseph. Mary's is promiscuous. Mary was unfaithful. Because in the eyes of God, in the eyes of the community, Joseph and Mary was already a couple. The problem is, she was pregnant. And in today's world, it doesn't matter. But in their world, this was a scandal. Verse 19. And her Joseph, sorry, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, if you're Joseph, you know for a fact that when you get married before the wedding day and she's pregnant, there's only one conclusion. She's unfaithful. The punishment for unfaithfulness is death. So what, what Joseph could have done is he could have told people, people will drag Mary to the town square and she will be stoned to death. That is the punishment for unfaithfulness. But, but Joseph did not do that. The Bible said that he was a just man, a righteous man, a man who wants to do the right thing. So he didn't want to kill Mary. He didn't want to spill the beans. He was unwilling to put her to shame. So he resolved to divorce her quietly. The question is why? What does it mean for Joseph to become righteous, to be a just man? Righteousness demands that he preserves his dignity. Righteousness demands also that he separates himself from the sinner. He has to turn Mary in, but he doesn't want to because Mary will be killed. So his decision, he's, only, he's got only one option left, but to quietly wait until Mary gives birth and then divorce her quietly. Again, he was a just man. But you see, here's the problem. No matter how quiet he is, after the birth, if they divorce, people will ask. And they will know. So people knows in the time of Jesus that Jesus was the bastard son of Joseph. He was a stepson. This was a scandal. Verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph... Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, just like you and me, just looking at you and I, we're, when we are about to make a major decision in life, we, we ask God for a sign. And I think Joseph is in the same situation because that phrase, he considered these things, can also mean that he was asking God for confirmation. He was brewing in his mind if he will divorce Mary, but he's not very confident about it. So he was praying and asking God for a sign, just like you and I. But why the dream? This is extraordinary. Here's the thing. See, the first century Palestine was reeked with Greek and Roman mythology. So in Greek and Roman mythology, 
It is believed that the gods in Mount Olympus always come down to earth and have sexual relations with women. That's why we have the demigods like Achilles and Hercules and Theseus and Perseus and even Helen of Troy. All these are mythologies, but they are demigods based on the encounters of the gods in Olympus, Roman mythology and Greek mythology, coming down to earth and having sexual relations with human women. But this cannot happen in Jewish custom. They don't have this kind of understanding. So Joseph instantly, when he, when he had this dream and the, and the angel appeared to him in a dream, he knew for a fact that this was from God. And this angel explained to him that this pregnancy was from the Holy Spirit. But you may be asking, how did exactly Mary get pregnant from the Holy Spirit? How did that happen? Is it, you know, Mary was one night having a dream and then suddenly the Holy Spirit came. And what happened exactly? Here's what happened. The scripture says that God created Adam and Eve. The first Adam. And what we know from the other part of the world in Southeast Asia is that God formed Adam from the ground. He put some water, he mixed it, molded it, put some eyes, ears, hands, feet, and then put it in the oven. And then God went some, somewhere and he forgot. So he went back and he's burned. The black people. <laughs> That's what we think. And so, second time around, God formed again from the dust, put water, formed it, put it in the oven, and went away. But he said, maybe I should come back. And white people, <laughs> too early. And the third one, you know, the brown people, just enough, well done. Or maybe, <laughs> you know, this is a mythology. This is not true. The Bible said that God formed Adam from the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and he became a living soul. That's the account of the Bible. What that means is that life begins with God through the Holy Spirit. Life begins with God through the Holy Spirit. It was God who breathed into Adam so that Adam became a living being, a living soul. And here's what's interesting about this one. How do we know that the Spirit of God can give life? This is what Job said, Job 27, verse 3. He said, As long as my breath is in me, and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood. What Job is saying is that life begins with God through the Holy Spirit. Now, it doesn't mean that Job's mom had sexual relations with the Holy Spirit so that he was the product of that union. What it's just simply saying is that as long as you have life, the Holy Spirit is the one who originated that life. That's what it's trying to say. Because life begins with God through the Holy Spirit. Now, let me give you another example before I get to the point. Abraham and Sarah. You know this couple, right? Abraham and Sarah. Now, Abraham and Sarah were legendary for, for two reasons. Number one, because Abraham was old when God called him and promised him that he will give him a son, an heir. He was then 75 years old. Anyone? All right, nobody. Nobody's 75. Sarah is about 10 years younger than him. All right? But the son came after 25 years. 25 years of waiting. When Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was 90 years old, that's when Isaac came out. 25 years in the making. This is what I call late, 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 late pregnancy. 
<laughs> now, if you really think about it, if you really read through, what this means is that it was really delayed. The question is, why did God wait 25 years before he gave them Isaac? The Bible said that Abraham was old, Sarah was old and barren. It's impossible for her to give children. But God waited 25 years because God wanted to make sure that the womb of Sarah is dead. Dead. As in impossible to create a life. So that God can give something that Abraham and Sarah cannot claim. See, we did it. At 90, we did it. At 100, look at me. I did it. It's impossible for them. Now, the Bible did not say that Sarah entered the menopausal stage. But, but you can read through the lines, right? You can read between the lines. You know that she entered the menopausal stage. At 90 years old, she would not. And if you would not, then your womb is closed. What the Bible is saying is that Sarah's womb was closed, was dead. But because of the Spirit of God, Isaac was formed. Isaac was born. It's a supernatural intervention of God. So like Adam and Abraham and Sarah, life is about the supernatural intervention of God through the Holy Spirit. What this means is that when Joseph had a dream and the angel said, Mary's pregnant with the Holy Spirit, he immediately understood. This is like Adam. This is like Abraham and Sarah. This is nothing new. Adam, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac were rehearsals. Jesus was the main event. Joseph knew. Verse 21. The angel said, She will bear son and shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Now, let me pause there for a moment because this one is kind of, kind of confusing. He shall call his name Jesus. That's the name. And the meaning of Jesus is that he will save his people from their sins. Now, the term Jesus is Greek. Now, Mary and Joseph have spoken Aramaic. Aramaic is, is a cousin of Hebrew. That's, that means the real name of Jesus in Hebrew is Yehoshua or Joshua in English. What that means is as Yahweh saves. But this one is very interesting because the angel specifically said, for he will save his people from their sins. What sins? What kind of sins? This sin is called transgression. You know, sometimes when you read the Bible and you get confused about iniquity, sins, transgressions. Ever come, come across those things? They're, they're different things. But this one is transgression. Transgression only happens when there's a promise and you broke the promise. So in a couple, when you get married, there's a promise. That's why you have a ring. When somebody becomes promiscuous, you break the promise. It's a transgression. It's the Israelites covenanted with God. They became one. God was their God. Israel was his people. They have a promise to each other to be faithful. But that means is that Israel was unfaithful to God. They sought after other gods. This is the sin that the angel was talking about. This is a transgression, a failure to be faithful. And this Jesus, the meaning of Jesus is that he will save the people from their transgressions. He will bring back the covenant. And it says all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And he quotes Isaiah. It says, behold, 
The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, Emmanuel, again, is not a name. It's a sign. A sign that says, God with us. Now, it's kind of confusing. Let me explain this. Now, to modern readers, there's two names that we read here, Jesus and Emmanuel. But again, Jesus is the name. Emmanuel is the sign. Have you ever wondered why, if Emmanuel is a name, Jesus never called Emmanuel throughout the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus was never called Emmanuel? I have a classmate in high school, he was named Emmanuel, but not Jesus. Jesus was never called Emmanuel throughout the whole New Testament, never, but he was called Jesus. Because again, Emmanuel is a sign, Jesus was the name. When you drive north, say, to Orlando, Orlando is the name of the city. That's the name. But as you drive along the way, you have signs along the way, like the mile markers or the, the freeway that you're using, if it's Turnpike or 95. And when you reach Orlando, there will be a huge sign that says, Welcome to Orlando, right? Even though you're not yet still in the city center. But that is a sign. Orlando is the name of the city. The marker is the sign. Welcome to Orlando. Jesus is the name. Emmanuel is a sign that tells you God is with us or the presence of God is with the people. That's what it means. Now, the birth of, of Jesus Christ was a sure sign that God was with them. That means everywhere Jesus walked, every word that came out of his mouth, every miracle that he did was a sign that God was with the people. Listen to me. This literally means, this is what it means literally for God's presence to be here. Jesus is the embodiment of God in the flesh. Jesus is the embodiment of God in the flesh. I mean, in all cultures, across cultures, people are looking for God. They're praying for, for God to show himself. But the birth of Jesus Christ is the embodiment of God in the flesh. Now, where is this idea coming from? Is this something that the disciples invented because they want to create a new religion? The answer is no. Now, what I'm about to show you is how the disciples understood the birth of Jesus Christ and the surrounding events happening in the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, there was a prominent prophet in the Old Testament by the name of Isaiah. Anybody heard of Isaiah? Yes? So this guy is, is a big, big-time prophet. And during that time, he has a son. And the name of his son, it's kind of quite differently uh, interesting. The name of his son is Cher Yashub, something that you don't name your son after. But the name in English means a remnant will return. What that name implies is that because there's a promise in Deuteronomy that if they break the covenant, the, the most punishment that God will give to them is that God will allow a foreign nation to invade Israel, destroy everything that they worked for, bring them to exile, and when they learn their lesson, God will allow them to, to go back to the promised land and that God will himself visit in person. So that it means every Jew at the time of Joseph was all waiting for this, for the coming back of God. It's not really that clear, but they were waiting for a Messiah. And they believe that this Messiah is sent from God himself. Now, we Christians have a different understanding of this one. 
we believe that this Messiah is God Himself coming to visit His people. There's a difference. But the question is, why did they miss the Messiah? If Jesus already came 2,000 years ago, how come they missed Jesus? How come they crucified Him? There are two things. Number one, because they missed the sign. Number two, because they're looking in the wrong places. They were looking for signs in the wrong places. See, Israel before and Israel today is still a small country. They say that Israel is just the size of New Jersey. It's very small. But if you're following the news, recently Iran had an alliance with the Hezbollah in Syria, in Lebanon, in Jordan, in Iraq, together with the Houthis in Yemen, against Israel. This is like another battle between David and Goliath. It's almost impossible for Israel to fight you know, nations surrounding him. But it's happening. At the time of Isaiah, there were two nations, two countries in the north of, uh, of Israel who were threatening to invade Israel. And the people were so afraid. And so God gave them another sign. Now, what's interesting is, is that this sign involves the birth of another boy in Isaiah's household. So again, he has one son, and God gave him another sign, which is the birth of another son. And this, this son has a, a very interesting name. Uh, the Hebrew name is Maher Shalal Hashbash. It, it's kind of different. But the meaning of his name is Emmanuel. The actual English meaning of Maher Shalal Hashbash is quick, quick, quick. Or chop, chop. That's, that's how I always hear Abdallah say to Jordan. Chop, chop, Jordan. This guy, his name is Quick, Quick. Very interesting. But, but there's an accompanying sign. And the accompanying sign is what we read about. Behold, the virgin will have a son and you will call his name Emmanuel. That was the sign. But here's the thing. I want you to think about this. Why does God need to give another sign to Israel? They have the temple. They have the Ark of the Covenant. The temple is the house of God. They all know that God lives in his house inside the temple. The Ark of the Covenant is the throne of God. That's the footstool. So if they have the temple and they have the Ark of the Covenant, why does God have to give another sign? Because the people are afraid. They want confirmation that they have God's protection. And here's the thing. It's because people were looking for God in the wrong places. They were looking for signs in the wrong places. Instead of looking at the temple, they were all looking up to heaven and asking God for a different kind of sign. I think this is the same thing that we do when we pray, when we, we make major decisions in life. We ask God for a sign. But you see, the first thing to really look for a sign, the first place to look for a sign is the scriptures. The scriptures is where we should look for signs. You know, we all have our Bibles, copies of our Bibles, and it's in our bookshelves collecting dusts. We're not opening them, we're not reading them, and yet we're asking God for a different kind of signs. And I get it, there are seasons in our lives where you know, we pray for guidance and God was completely quiet. We pray for wisdom and and it feels like God is too distant from us. So we ask God for signs. And so we pray, God, show yourself. I want, I want to experience you. Speak to me in your own, in your own personal way. Give me a sign. 
See, Prophet Isaiah also had this sign. And he gave them, God gave them assurances through the birth of his son. So this time, the birth of another boy, and this other boy, his name is Maher Shalal Hashbaz, but the sign was Emmanuel. Exactly at the end of Isaiah chapter 8, verse 18, this is what Isaiah said. He said, here I am, and the children the Lord has given me, we are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. What Isaiah is saying here is that his children are signs for the people of Israel. Every time they see the son of Isaiah, he's a living, breathing, talking sign of God so that people will not be afraid. So the people will really trust in God. If I'm going to review my life and if I'm going to review all the prayers that I made for God, if I would review all those desire for asking for a sign, at the end of the day, my question should be, will I be able to read the signs properly? If God is giving me signs my way, will I be able to read the signs properly? Where should I look for the signs? Where, where are the right places to look for a sign? I bet Joseph knew the story of Isaiah. He knew the story of Isaiah's children. So the moment he had a dream, he knew and he understood this is a confirmation that his son, Joseph, his son is going to be steps on Jesus, is a confirmation of God's presence with us, with them. Now, how do we know that? Why does God have to give another sign? No, he gave another sign in the time of Isaiah, but he also gave another sign in the time of Joseph. Why does God have to give another sign in the time of Joseph? Here's the thing. During their time, Herod was the king. But Herod was under the Roman control. Herod was actually a puppet of Rome. What they need is God as king. So if you think about it, Herod during the time under Rome is like in their time in Exodus under Pharaoh. It's the same thing. They need liberation from Egypt. So they need liberation from Rome. That's why God has to give them another sign. Every Jew during that time is all waiting for a Messiah. Why? Because Yahweh apparently, although the temple was already rebuilt, God has not returned to Israel yet. How do we know that? How do we know that God is not in Israel in the time of Jesus? Here's the thing. In 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar marched to Israel, burned the temple, took the Ark of the Covenant, brought it to Babylon. And it was lost. It was lost. That means in the time of Joseph, even the, they have the temple rebuilt. The temple was empty. God's presence was not in the temple. So what this means is that politically, they have no God and therefore no king. The presence of God was not there. What about religiously? We know about Leviticus chapter 16, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, correct? And there's a protocol during that day, once a year, the high priest would enter the temple. He would go through the curtain. He would bring blood and would sprinkle blood on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, what's missing here? Fast forward, time of Jesus. There's no Ark of the Covenant. They have no way to complete the Day of Atonement. Sins are not forgiven. This is the reason why God is to give them another sign. 
because sins are not forgiven. How would you, how would it feel if you've been waiting for a year? You know, if you've been waiting for a year, you've been waiting for this day of atonement, and you know that the day's coming when the high priest will go inside and all the sins will be forgiven. But you know that there's no Ark of the Covenant inside and your sins will not be forgiven. And you will have to wait maybe five more years or maybe 10 years or maybe 25 years or maybe never because the Ark of the Covenant was not there. This is the case in the time of Jesus Christ. The Ark was lost. It was brought to Babylon. But you know what happened? The Ark was found. The Ark was found in Cairo, Egypt. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Indiana Jones found it. Yeah. When I watched this movie, I really thought that Harrison Ford found it. I really thought. It was so convincing. No, the, the truth is that it's lost. It's never found. Until today, there's no Ark of the Covenant. So imagine Joseph knowing this and having a dream and having the sign and understanding the sign about Jesus. Joseph is placed in an impossible situation. See, even if he understood the sign and he believes the, the angel, how will he convince the people around him that Mary is pregnant with the Holy Spirit? <laughs> that is hard to explain. The, the dream is hard to explain. You'd probably say it's easy for Joseph because an angel appeared to him in a dream. But remember, this is a dream. How will it look like if one day you come up to me and say, Pastor Norbert, I had a dream and God told me I will become the next president. I might think you're crazy. <laughs> I might think you're crazy. So imagine Joseph having this dream and telling other people, he would be thinking the same thing. People will think he's crazy. There's no way to confirm this dream. And yet the Bible said in verse 24, when Joseph woke up from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Here's the question. Where do I look for signs? If I'm praying, if I'm about to make a major decision in life, if I'm praying, where do I look for signs today? The first place to look for is the scriptures. There's no simpler way I can, I can put this, but the scriptures. You know, the reason why Joseph understood the dream was because he read the story of Adam, because he read the story of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac, because he read the scriptures. That's why his dream, his dream he understood his dream. It clicked because he read the scriptures. Now I'm thinking if we don't read the scriptures, there's no way for us to understand the signs that God is giving our way. Really, the answer is simple. All you have to do is read the scriptures and you will know there's a pattern that God is doing. And if you're asking God for a sign, God is giving them to you through the scriptures. There's a reason why the Bible said that the, the word of God is living and active, sharper than two, any two-edged sword. It is alive. God speaks through the scriptures. But you may say, Pastor, my, my situation is different. My problems are so much different from Abram and Sarah. Okay, I get it. I get it. Your situation and your problems may different, may be different, but your journey is the same as mine. Your journey is the same as mine. Why? Because the test of faith is the same. 
The grace of God is the same. The enemy that we battle with is the same. God's grace is the same. And before you think that you are you're unique and your life is difficult and your problems are way bigger, I'm going to help you and say, stop. Stop this kind of nonsense. Why? Have you ever thought, have you ever waited for 25 years like Sarah? Anyone? Have you ever been sold a slave in Egypt like Joseph? Have you ever had the stress like Moses for 40 years? Have you ever faced giant like David? Anyone? Let's skip to the New Testament. Have you, has, has Matthew chapter 5 been true to your life? Matthew chapter 5 says, Blessed are you if you are persecuted for his namesake. Anyone has been going through that? Anyone has been like Paul and Peter and James and John? Anyone has been like the early Christians who were burnt alive and eaten by lions? Now I'm telling you, your situation may be different, but it's not unique. It's not unique. It's, it's unique only in some variables. But it's not unique because we're going through the same thing. How do we know that? The Bible says so. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. All of us are going through the same test, the same temptations. God is making sure we go through the same path. It says, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Folks, we go through the same stuff. We go through the same test. We go through the same obstacles in life. In all my years of faith, this is what I learned. That the journey that you're going through is bespoke to you. Bespoke means it's tailor fit to you to your ability, to your situation, to your need, to your endurance and your tolerance. We're not different. My, my test may be different in a way because my endurance is different. My tolerance is different. My ability is different than yours. God gives exactly the right amount that you need, that you can tolerate to endure and pass the test. So in this sense, you can say you're unique, but it's not really unique in the sense that we all go through the same similar tests. We only have one test of faith, one path, and that is always moving forward, moving to righteousness, moving to perfection, moving to become like Jesus. We're all being made to become like Jesus. That is the test that I'm talking about. Listen to Apostle Peter clarify this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. He said this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, Apostle Peter, when he was writing this book, Christians in Cappadocia and Christians in Asia Minor were undergoing persecution. And that's why, it's, that's why he's saying various trials. Some were, some were experiencing poverty. Some were experiencing real persecutions. Some were arrested without trial. And Apostle Peter is like saying, rejoice. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's what I know. 
I'm going to say something that may hurt you, but this is true. I'm going to say this because I love you. God is more interested in refining the, your faith than making you comfortable. God is more interested in your character than increasing your income. Listen, God is more interested in your holiness than your happiness. Because if you fail to look for God in the scriptures, there's a big chance you'll miss the signs. And God is giving them to you so that we know that we can walk faithfully. So that if we see the signs from the word of God, we can make godly and correct decisions in life. We know that this is the will of God for our lives. If you're a Christian, I highly encourage you to search the scriptures. I highly encourage you that if you're praying for something, go through the scriptures. God will give you the sign. If you're a guest, that this is new to you. And if you're not sure of the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit, let me help you. The Bible says that we are lost without God. That also means that we are dying without forgiveness. We are like the temple without the Ark of the Covenant, without the presence of God because of our sins. That means we have to acknowledge the claims of Jesus Christ, who he is. We have to believe that he really died on the cross and rose from the grave and that his death is the basis of forgiveness and that the invitation that he's giving us is offered to every one of us so that we can be reconciled to God so that we can walk by faith. Brothers and sisters, there's only one place to look for signs. And whether you're a Christian or you're not, this is our chance to really delve into the word of God and hear from him, straight from him, through his word. Bow your heads. Let's pray with me. If you're not sure about your relationship with God, I want to help you. I want to lead you in prayer. Say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I believe you died for me. I confess that you are God in the flesh and I declare my submission to you alone. Speak to me. Speak to me. If you are, if you're praying to God and you're about to make a major decision in life, but God seems to be distant. He seems to be quiet. Beloved, my prayer is that God will reveal himself to you, not in the most supernatural way, but through his word. And I pray that you will, that God will give you the thirst for his word. Father, I pray for the church. I pray for all of us. Father, I pray for the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Give us the thirst to search you. Give us the thirst to fellowship with you. Give us this thirst coming from our hearts to search the scriptures so that we can know you better. So that we can develop this relationship with you. Allow yourselves, Father, to be revealed. We want to experience you. We want to know you more. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.